When I used to fiend really bad for heroin and when I would be really sick, I would go into our community needle bucket that I shared with like 10 people and I would shoot everybody's old blood. And so that's where I feel like, you know, the addiction is a not a choice thing because there were so many times when I was like, I, I want to stop, I hate this, but just some kind of evil force was just like, no, no, I keep going, you know. Hello, welcome to another episode of Bunny Hugs and Mental Health, a free safe space for people to share and learn from others' experiences with mental health and addictions. I'm Todd Rennebaum, suicide attempt survivor and a recovering substance abuser. Thank you for joining me for another episode. This week I'm speaking with Christina and she was trafficked and was forced into being a sex worker. She's also in recovery of addictions and Christina is almost two years clean and recovered, and that's amazing, so good for her. Uh, she's also in recovery of, of course, traumas and all types of uh, things that happened to her while she was uh, on the streets and using, so we're going to learn about her life and how she got trafficked and what her addiction looked like and how she's doing now. I want everybody to know that the second episode a week is very, very close to being released, and I will announce that very, very soon. Uh, and I'll be announcing who my co-host is. Uh, it's going to be great. He's a super, super great guy. And uh, I'll give you a hint. He's been on the podcast before and he has his own podcast. <laughs> but we're not sure yet. We're, we're going to meet today. It might be after Christmas. It might be right away when it happens. Of course, I'll let you all know. But for now, let's, let's take a listen to Christina. So, so without further ado, I give you Christina. So right now we're just mostly treating my bipolar, um, which got really bad over the summer. Um, a psychiatric med that I had tried for depression um, called Effexor uh, had kind of the opposite effect on me and it made me very angry and like I had rage episodes and everybody else could see it. And like if my mom and dad and boyfriend sat me down, they're like, we don't think this medication is right for you. And, you know, I think you don't see it. And then I did see it after they pointed it out. So I just tapered all the way off of that. And that's pretty hard to do too, tapering off of antidepressants. Um, you know, it's been hard trying to find a medication combo that works for me. Um, but I think I yeah. found something good. Um, I'm on Wellbutrin and Boost Baroni right now. Boost Baroni is like non-narcotic anxiety. It has a very mild effect. But that with the Wellbutrin, I feel like I'm doing better in this past month or two than I have since I've been clean. Mm. So, Yeah, I used to take Effexor too. And yeah, it's a nightmare to get off of. Wait, I think I'm still on it. Is it also called Venlafloxin? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm still on it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's the okay. one I'm on. Yeah, it's... It I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> that's why people go off their meds all the time, because they're like, I don't know, I think I'm fine. And then they go off it, and then the shit hits the fan. But uh, but since I've been diagnosed with the ADHD, and I've been taking the ADHD meds, I'm like, well, is my anxiety a symptom of the ADHD? And it's like, is that med helping with it? Like, do I need this other one? And it's, yeah, it's... Of course, my psychiatrist, too, is like, don't you dare go off it. But, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I have gone off it before. And, mm -hmm. yeah, and it's a, like, talk about withdrawal. Holy moly, you got to taper off for a long, long, long time. And, it, yeah, it's it's dangerous to just quit. Yeah, that was probably the first psych med that ever gave me, you know, because they gave you that they give you that warning that antidepressants for some, especially teenagers, can cause even more depression and suicidal ideations. So that was the first time that it ever like made me worse. Um, mm. Other meds that I had tried and stopped taking was because of the weight gain side effect, um, you know. I'm sure we'll get into this, but the very first thing I was ever addicted to was food. So, mm. you know, weight has always been, um, you know, a trigger and an issue and an ongoing problem that I'm still struggling with. So, mm. um, yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate you coming on. I'm honored. I'm super excited. And I do have a lot of very shameful things from my past 
that I have gotten, you know, very honest about on social media, but I have, I cannot tell you how many people have either messaged me or commented like, thank you so much for being vulnerable. And the same thing happened to me and I've never told anybody. And so, you know, part of me sometimes is like, I don't want to keep that stuff up there. Like another post that I did on TikTok, you should follow me on there because I post a lot more on there. I think Um, I do now. Yeah. I recently did a post about, you know, when I used to fiend really bad for heroin and when I would be really sick, I would go into our community needle bucket that I shared with like 10 people and I would shoot everybody's old blood, which is disgusting. And, and, and I I didn't even realize until just maybe six months ago, like, wow, I can, yeah, I just cannot believe that I did that. Like that is just so dangerous, so gross. And I would never do anything like that today. And so that's where I feel like, you know, the addiction is a not a choice thing because there were so many times when I was like, I, I want to stop. I hate this. I hate what you're doing. Stop. Like, put it down already. But just some kind of evil force was just like, no, no, got to keep going, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, it's like you're, it's not even, yeah, it's not even, it's not a choice anymore. It's like your body, your body is so physically addicted to it that you you need that just to be able to function. And I mean, it just overrides your whole system and you just do whatever you can to get that little bit. And I even experienced that with marijuana. Like, I don't know how many times I tried quitting. And I I, I think the longest I went was like four hours and I was having a panic attack and anxiety uh, attack. So <laughs> I was calling everybody I knew to get some because my dealer at the time wasn't around. So I thought that'd be a good time to quit. And uh, yeah, it lasted Is about it four legal or five hours. In Canada? It is now. It is now, yeah. Uh, shortly after I I, I uh, went to treatment, it became legal. I was like, oh, it's legal. Aw. Okay, <laughs> that's uh, makes it more hard too. But I believe in canna recovery for some. Um, it is a pathway that some can use and and others can't. But that you know that's just that particular post ended up going semi-viral and got like 18,000 views. And I was humiliated. It even says on it in in words at the top, might delete later because so embarrassed. But I just couldn't believe the amount of, there was like 600 something comments of, oh my God, I did something like that too. And thank you so much for being vulnerable. Please don't delete this. And I was like, okay, you know, a lot of what I do, I'm doing it for them. It's kind of shameful on my end, you know? Well, I mean, I... (laughs) I, I I don't know if it's shameful. I mean, it's just uh, it is what it is. It's the addiction, and and I I I worked in the the treatment center I went to for a couple of years, and uh, yeah, and and I mean I've heard it. I think I've heard it all. I've heard a lot anyway. So, um, so that I mean it is a a normal. I mean it it sounds fucked up, but it's a normal thing to do fucked up shit when you're fucked up (laughs) yeah i didn't realize like just how dangerous it was like the old blood and all the bacteria that grows in it i mean i don't know if you've also seen pictures of me in a on life support and a hospital bed um that was from shooting old blood um Mm. you know having abscesses on my arms or legs that i would go and let go untreated you know it's very common for people that use needles to get skin infections and especially like over in kensington and philadelphia like you see those zombie cities and stuff with their whole leg is like just infected i never had it that bad but it's it's so common and not getting that stuff treated is deadly you know cuz mm-hmm. sepsis can kill you for sure yeah. so um I hope that that deterred, you know, other people from ever trying that route. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, tell me about the the being being trafficked and how that came about. I'm okay. I've been kind of reaching out to a couple people about about this, and of course, some people don't want to talk about it. Um, well, and and would... it is something that's you know, sorry, and and it is something that I see more and more in the in the news all the time. And so I used to refer to it as being pimped out. That was Mm. what like I had been psychologically tricked into thinking what it was. I did not even realize until probably eight years later that I in fact was trafficked. 
Um, how it happened was I moved to Hawaii when I was 20 years old or 21 years old. My parents sent me there to go to rehab. I was already strung out on needles. Um, I had tried a bunch of programs here with no luck. And so they, it's a three year long rehab they sent me to. So that was like the goal, but I only stayed there for three months. Um, it was a behavior modification type rehab where they yell at you and like put you down and then build you back up later. But I couldn't handle being put down and like name called and yelled at. And they had very weird treatment techniques, but anyways, um, so I ended up leaving that program and like my parents promised, they would not fly me home. They were like, if you leave, this is like your last, they were trying very hard to like not enable me. And so I became homeless in Hawaii. Um, and I was very vulnerable, um, because the part of the Island I was in was not like a touristy part. It was like a local part where you just don't really see many white people. And, you know, I hate to say it, but in those parts of Hawaii, there is still a lot of racism towards white people. They have a lot of anger towards us, which is completely justified, you know, due to history and us taking their land and everything like that. Um, so I got bullied a lot. I got um, taken advantage of. My car would get stolen. I, people would say that they could get me drugs and then take my money. I was just getting eaten alive out there um, until I like learned how to start sticking up for myself. But um I was living in my car in downtown Honolulu, and um, I met this guy outside of my car, and um, he had just gotten out of prison. He had just gone out two days before that, and so he was still in, like, his, his jail wife beater and shorts and slippers and everything, and uh, it started as a romantic thing, you know, but he didn't have those intentions at all. He th convinced me that those were his intentions, but what he saw was a target you know, a very vulnerable, I guess you could say still attractive, you know, 20 year old who's addicted to drugs and has a car and has parents that sometimes will help with like maybe $50 here or there. So he saw me as an opportunity. Um, and so, yeah, that's how it started. And, you know, after a few weeks of us dating, he, you know, he's like, if you want money for drugs and a place to live and, you know, I'll, I'll support you and take care of you and, you know, how pimps do. Um, and so that's how it started. And I honestly and genuinely would never have done anything like that had it not been for him. I have this loyalty tattoo on my chest that I got for him. I was super, I had no self-love. My self-esteem was complete shit. Like I hated who I saw in the mirror. So that was the type of love that like I allowed and was okay. Uh, you know, he eventually told me, if you truly love me and you want to be with me, you'll do this. And so I just surrendered. I was like, fine, what do you want me to do? And he actually picked out dresses for me and like high heels. And uh, they actually put me out on the strip in Waikiki, which is like the, where the girls walk back and forth. But I just had no idea what I was doing. It was so awkward. And I'm, I was, I didn't know how to hustle myself yet as a woman. So I was like, hey, you want to hang out? No, okay. Excuse me, do you want to hang out? No, okay. Like I just didn't do well. So they took me off the strip and put me into an Asian massage parlor. Um, that was illegal. It was like an underground thing. Um, and you know, I will say that having money for drugs was a, a motivation, but I was just obsessed with this guy. Like I would have done anything for him to love me back. Um, so, you know, I refer to it as being trafficked because that is one of the most common ways that women are trafficked. They call it the Romeo technique or the love bombing technique. Um, you know, it's not always getting kidnapped and, you know, tied up in a white van. Oftentimes men manipulate these situations and manipulate a girl's feelings for them, um, you know, to do that. And so that was what started, you know, eight years of, of sex work. Um, two years was with him, under him, giving all my money to him. And yes, he did, you know, I guess put me in a place and ha give me money for drugs. But for the most part, the money was for him. And, you know, he would like buy all of his friends shit, like, like beer and shit. Um, and I just, I didn't know how to stick up for myself. And I remember thinking like, God, this is not love. Like, how is this man going to tell me he loves me and then be okay with me sleeping with three guys in one night? And so there was a lot of like inner turmoil um, and a lot. And after two years, he, you know, cause he never really loved me for me. So once he realized that like, I, 
you know, I was just, all I cared about was the drugs. At this point, I had sores all over my face and I looked like a drug addict and it was hard for me to get dates. So he just dropped me and went to the next girl. And uh, when he told me that he was taking another girl to Vegas because she could make more money than me, I remember driving over there and like chasing him in my car. You're not going to leave me. Because I felt so abandoned. Like, how are you going to turn me into a prostitute on the streets and then just leave me to like fend for myself? And so that was when the using, like not caring if I lived or die started because I felt so much shame with myself. Like, how could you do that for that piece of shit? Like he was such a piece of shit. And, um, and yeah. So that is the story of how I was trafficked. That was now over like 11, 12 years ago. And I'm finally starting the healing process. And I'm talking, I have a therapist that I talk to about this. Um, But there is still a lot, you know, more to be revealed. You know, I hate to say it that I probably only remember 10% of the dates that I did throughout those eight years. Um, And I learned it's a trauma uh, response. If you if something's happening to you that is awful and you hate it so much, your brain says, I'm going to block this out because I don't want to remember this later. And so what concerns me and, and scares me is the stuff that I don't remember because the, I do remember, you know, I was raped and assaulted and beat up and I, you know, met multiple times, multiple times. Um, and those are just the dates that I remember. I know there was like a lot more drama in there, but, um, Anyways, I'll I'll pause for a second and give you a chance to say anything if you want. <laughs> no, that's fine. I'm, I'm just listening. It's uh, I I so how uh, how long have you been clean now? I've been clean since August nineteenth, twenty twenty one. Nice. Okay, so um, yeah, pushing just over two years. Yeah, two a little over two years and three months. Um, right, and I have been on methadone the whole time, um, but I've not had any relapses and I have continuously tapered this whole time since I've been clean, I've been tapering. Um, and I'm down to 21 milligrams. So, I mean, I am right around the corner. I'm bound and determined, um, you know, a methadone taper and suboxone taper is not easy because you Mm -hmm. do experience withdrawals as well with those. Um, but I've, got so much support on TikTok from other women who have already tapered off and they are right there. They've given me their phone numbers and I can message them at any time. Like it's weird because the with like the withdrawal tapers or the taper withdrawals, it's not like regular withdrawals. It'll you'll get like one symptom for a few minutes and then it will go away. And then you'll get like another one. You don't feel them all at one time, but like, I don't know. So that makes it kind of easier to get through it. Like I'll get like a runny nose or I'll start to get chills. And that's like a sure sign that it's just my body adjusting to the new dose. Um, But I'm like, it's all right. It's going to be, it'll pass in a few minutes, you know? And I also have, you know, um, like non-narcotic meds to help me with the taper, like clonidine, um, not clonopin, but clonidine is a non-narcotic blood pressure medication that is given for withdrawal. And my primary doctor at Kaiser actually gives me um, like a standing order for it. So, um, you know, it's, mm. it's not well, it's easy, a- but it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how many people get support through social media. I mean, I mean, there's good, there's pros and cons of social media, but it seems people that have uh, things that or maybe stigmatized get a lot out of social media because you find, you know, like-minded people or people have gone through the same experiences and stuff. So that's amazing that, uh, that people have reached out and, and are supporting you through there. Yeah. I think that's definitely the biggest, um, you know, benefit of social media that, people on there are what inspired me to be honest about being on methadone because I'm a recovering heroin addict. I was a heroin addict for 16 years, meth addict for 16 as well. And so, um, you know, for me, it was kind of like a last, a last option. It's like, I've tried everything else at this point and I, I, I need to get clean because when I got clean, I was 250 pounds. I was in the beginning stages of congestive heart failure. So my ankles were swollen like tree trunks and that is from the meth use. Um, 
So yeah, and my teeth were all like gray and rotting in the front and I had sores. Like I didn't look like how I do now. Um, my parents, mm -hmm. bless their souls, have helped me fix my teeth, um, which has just been a blessing. It, it makes a huge difference when, you know, your teeth are fixed because there was a time where I would cover my mouth every time I smiled or just not smile at all. Um, so, so right. many blessings have happened since I've been clean. It's just beyond amazing. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I've spoke to a few people about their teeth. Um, one lady was actually it was an eating disorder, and uh, her teeth got got all messed up. And it's amazing how much more confidence and self esteem you get just having good teeth. Because I mean, that's something people notice right away, and then people make judgments right away, and so then it's it's this perpetual, you know, um, stigma and all judgments and stuff. So. Uh, that's cool yeah. that uh, you're you're able to fix your teeth. I uh, I grow a mustache to hide my teeth, <laughs> <laughs> but mine's genetics. <laughs> well, you know, not everybody has the ability or a family to help them, and so I consider myself very grateful. Um, and I I just wish that there was more available programs made, you know, to people to help get their teeth fixed because it's just so expensive. Mm -hmm. Um. And it's interesting that, uh, like you said, a lot of people when they're trafficked, they're like kidnapped and all this stuff. And and a lot of times when they're trafficked, they actually get the women hooked to drugs, and then that's their their uh, you know then they got their hooks in them. So then then you okay, well if you want more drugs, then you have to do this. So it was almost like you skipped that step, so that you, your trafficker didn't you didn't need to kidnap you or anything. It was like he could see that you were already, you know, had this uh, uh, addiction and, and he could manipulate you with it. But yeah, you were a perfect target. And uh, um, and I mean, I if you consider yourself trafficked, then so do I. I mean, who am I to say who what is the definition of being trafficked or not? I want to spread awareness about it because... You know, I believe that there are a lot of women who are doing this for their boyfriends because they're pressured or because they're manipulated. Um, and they need to see that that is 100% human trafficking, whether he is your boyfriend or not. Um, and I have had people say, oh, you weren't trafficked. You were just pimped out. But it's like, how? what is the fucking difference? You know, yeah, um, yeah. me willingly being there, you know, it, it's... I don't know. I just, that is the one thing in my life that I have not healed yet from. And I wonder if, cause I had had men ask me, you know, Oh, if you have sex with me, I'll give you money before I had met this, the man, I'll just call him the man um, sure. before I met him. And I was always like, Ew, no, like I would never do that. My parents raised me very well. I come from a really good family and my parent, my mom raised me to, you know, be the smartest woman at college, not the best hooker on the street. And so I know that that brought them a lot of shame too. Cause I remember I had this one lady that was our landlord and she ended up finding out that what we were doing and called my parents and told them, um, I was only like 21 or 22 at the time. Um, because my parents were paying for half the rent or something. I don't remember what, but I remember my parents calling me and they, what is this, Christina? You know, and not only that, but it was with, there was, okay. Uh, I do have a story that I should share, but it's, it's super fast. Basically this man also brought another girl into the mix and insisted that she go on dates with me. I didn't like it from the beginning. Something was off about her. She seemed very young. And I asked her multiple times how old she was. She was a runaway from home. So it turns out she goes on a date by herself and gets popped and then rats on all of us. And then we all find out that she's only 16. So, you know, she had come up to us like, you know, wanting to party with us and shit. And, not necessarily to sell herself. Obviously, the guys are the ones that manipulated her into doing that, but just exposing me to that. You know, they put me at risk for being, you know, promoting the pro prostitution of a minor, even though I, you know what I mean? I didn't even mm -hmm. know how old she was. And, you know, whether they're 16 or 18, I mean, you can't really tell the difference, but mm. that was a whole thing. And I had to go to court and, you know, I testified against, um, the, I testified against him. I was like, it's not, it was not me. It was him. And so, mm. yeah, they, they saw that and, you know, 
saw so, that I was a victim too. Um, but then you stayed with him after that? I did, yeah. And he was on um, drug court jail, basically, where this was just like another added thing. And there ended up, I don't honestly even know what ha- and happened to the end result of it, but I do know that he already had legal issues and it's probably still like affecting him today. Um, they have something called drug court in Hawaii where you call and then if they, if it's your color, you have to go in that day and test. And so he was already on something like that when all of this happened. And so it was just, I don't know, mm. it's all kind of a blur to remember, to be honest, but um, yeah. Huh. Well, I, I, well, my heart goes out to that 16 year old girl too. And was there other, other girls too, that he, he was trafficking or, or was it most, mostly you and her? She was only in the picture for maybe three weeks. Um, oh, I see. And so it was like, I remember they were like, okay, you're going to be doing dates with her now. And we're going to be posting the two of you together. And I was like, what? Like, you know, I don't want this. I done, you know what I mean? But I Mm -hmm. did whatever he told me to. That's, I was like, I thought being a loyal bitch was literally doing whatever your boyfriend wanted you to do. And I was okay with being talked to like, bitch, shut the fuck up, bitch, give me my money, like shit like that. And I, mm-hmm. I would not in a million years be talked to like that today. And my boyfriend today would never treat me like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was just yeah. awful. It was awful. Well, it's coercive control. It's, 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 mm-hmm. dark. yeah. Um, what, when you said she was, did you say she was popped or copped? Like she was arrested? Okay. Oh yeah, no, she got popped, um, like in a sting in a, they were doing prostitution stings. And so what got, usually they just like write you a ticket and let you go. But because she was underage and she was reported missing and Mm. her dad was like in the military. And so once he found out what's going on, he was trying to prosecute like to the fullest extent, um, but once right. they realized that, like, I didn't, I was just a victim too, and like cleared my name, I didn't keep going to the court dates or anything. And I don't know what happened. I think he actually was in trouble and like went on the run from the law uh, with the, his new girl that he took to Vegas. Um, but mm. yeah, mm. It's crazy. So, how did you even end up uh, getting into? heroin and the drugs and stuff like how you said you came from a nice family and a supportive family and uh well taken care of how how did it go from from that to sleeping in your car in hawaii yeah i know it's crazy um i definitely had a really good childhood um my first issues started probably around 10 years old with food and my body and um i would sneak food i would like sneak seconds and Um, I remember my dad making comments like, you know, you, you can't eat, you know, five meals a day, Christina, you need to, he wasn't like mean about it or anything, but I just remember, uh, the body dysmorphia and the eating disorders starting from a very young age. I was probably 12 or 13 when I started actually making myself throw up because I played sports. So, you know, volleyball, you wear like the hoochie little shorts. And then I was also a cheerleader in the little skirts. And so, you know, a a girl that age, 12 years old, especially growing up in Southern California, which is where I'm from, um, you know, back in the early 2000s, big butts and hips, you know, were not in. So it was it was cool to be stick thin and wear super low jeans with your hip bones sticking out. And so, uh, you know, the media and its whole like, you know, what women should look like played a huge role in my younger years. And I began feeling a sense of desperation. Like I couldn't stop eating, but I wanted so badly to be skinny. And so that's when I started seeking out cocaine because someone told me that it um, makes you lose weight. Now, at this point, I had smoked weed and drank and tried mushrooms and I think had tried ecstasy, like just kind of the normal stuff that high school kids had tried. I think I was probably 13 or 14. Um, But I know I was in my sophomore year when we were trying to get cocaine. So that was like 14 years old. And then... uh, One thing I've learned through my experience with mental health and addictions is you never know what you need to hear until you hear it. Make sure to rate and review on Apple and to tell as many people as you can about the podcast so others can hear something they need to hear from one of my guests. After all, this is a free mental health service, which is a rare thing, so why not share with as many people as you can?
Today's episode of Bunny Hugs and Mental Health is brought to you by Co-op. I've been a member of my local co-op, Sherwood Co-op, for, oh, about 25 years, I think. My co-op is one of more than 150 local independent cooperative associations in more than 600 communities across Western Canada. Co-op is a different kind of business. It's not just a gas bar or a grocery store, although co-op is those things too. At its core, co-op is a group of people working together to help their neighbors and build their community. Co-op members are owners and success is shared with everyone. Your co-op doesn't benefit one person or one corporation. Your co-op was built for everyone. Your co-op was built for your community. Learn more about co-op and find a location near you at co-op.crs. friend of mine at school, this young kid, he, he's like, well, I have this, these pills that my parents make me take. Um, and I hate how they make me feel, but they totally take away my appetite. I was like, Oh, nice. Like bring them, you know, 100% had absolutely no idea that what I was taking was amphetamines. I Mm. thought everything that came in a prescription type bottle like that gave those effects. Cause I had never like taken anything out of a prescription bottle before, but anyways, um, so I became addicted to Adderall when I was 15. Um, I was like, what is this magical pill? Like it gives me energy. I play, I can go longer in sports. Like I can do my homework, not once, but three times rewritten in different colors. You know what I mean? Like just weird stuff that Adderall makes people do. If you're not supposed to be taking it, I know that Mm -hmm. if, if you need it, it gives a different effect, but I didn't need it. So it got me super twacked out. Um, and then by the time I was 16, I remember being at a party and this man that looked older than us, probably in his early twenties, asked me if I wanted to go outside and smoke in his car. And I I thought he talked, talk about weed, like a bowl of weed. I'm like, okay, sure. So I follow him out and sure enough, he pulls out a meth pipe. I didn't know what it was. I didn't even know. I was like, what is that? He's like, oh, well, have you done Coke? I was like, yeah, I've done Coke and ecstasy. He's like, well, it's like that, but better. And so he gave me my first hit when I was 16 years old. Um, By the time I I became immediately addicted to it was calling him, like trying to pick up some the next day. And um, I ended up going to my first rehab when I was 16 years old. After probably eight to nine months of the drug use, um, I had a job working at a steakhouse part-time as a hostess. And so... I would get super high on meth and just go like work doubles and like run around the restaurant. I mean, I'm sure it was super obvious. Um, Somehow I was able to graduate from high school um, and I got into Cal State Long Beach. So when I was a freshman, I moved there to live in the dorms. Now, after my first stint in rehab, when I was 16, I got out when I was 17. I remember having my 17th birthday in there. Um, it was a 30-day program, but I ended up going back to school, and I didn't want to be clean. I mean, I thought I did, but I couldn't handle being sober. Like, I needed something, anything to change my mindset. And so that was when I just started doing anything I could get my hands on, really. And if I couldn't find meth, I would go and steal a bottle of alcohol and just get super drunk. I couldn't go to work without drinking first. Like I couldn't go to work without taking a few hits of something. I had to take drugs before I did anything. So I was like very obviously addicted. Um, So by the time I was 19, I am hardly going to class. I'm already failing out of college. Um, My parents are paying for an apartment for me up in Long Beach. And I meet this guy of course, another guy. Um, it's always like the tattooed felons that, that get me. Um, but he was a doctor hopper. This was during the time when like everybody was getting prescribed oxys and right. it was like way too over prescribed. And so he would go and see different doctors all over Los Angeles and Long Beach. I had a car, a little Honda Civic. So he saw me again as an opportunity and started using my car to go. And so he'd give me Norcos and Oxys and, but he would always be completely slumped over like this. And I'm like, what are you on? Like, I want some of that because I'm obviously not like doing the same shit as you. And, uh, and I found out that he was injecting black tar heroin in my bathroom and was keeping it a secret from me. You know, a normal person would be like, get the fuck out of my house. Never come back. Me, I was like, if you don't give me some now, I'm kicking you out. I made him (laughs) shoot me up for the first time. And so 
that was where the needle started. And I, uh, ended up dropping out my, the end of my sophomore year because I wasn't even passing my classes anyways. And my parents wanted me to get help. And so I went to rehab in and out for the next year with no success. Um, and so that's when I moved to Hawaii when I was mm. 20, 21. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah. So would you say you have, cause it, I, I mean, this is a, it's not uncommon to hear your story that it usually starts with men. Uh, you, you really are seeking the approval of men. Um, and you just try to do everything to keep their, attention on you and keep them, uh, keep that relationship going. Actually, in, uh, yeah, it's really common. When I was in, in treatment I, and when I worked there, um, the counselors would actually ask, cause there was a lot of people that were dealers that were in our groups. It'd be like, have you ever paid someone with drugs to, to have sex with you? And some people would raise their hands and they'd be like, you know, you, you know, you, you're, you're basically a pimp. Or or whatever, like in a lot of them, they were, it, was, it, was just, it sounds just like your 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 one, the man, like they had girlfriends and women staying with them all the time, and and these guys didn't even clue in that that's what they were doing until they were in treatment. And a counselor's like, "Hey, dumbass, just so you know, <laughs> like yeah. you 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 were doing this." And even some of the women uh, in treatment, there were, uh, you know, that was another question was who was paid in drugs to, to have sex. And there was, you know, they, some people would raise their hands. It was like, well, it was with my boyfriend though. And then my counselor would be like, Hey, again, dumbass, <laughs> you know, like you were being manipulated. You were being trafficked. You were doing this, you know? And, um, so, so yeah, it's, 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 it's so heartbreaking. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Like what, why do you think you, you needed to be, to have that, uh, attention from men because you were so, paranoid about your body that you were just like, Hey, this guy. Yeah. yeah look back. I think it was just a, a deep rooted insecurity in myself. Um, that only could be validated by drugs or men. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I have no shame admitting that 100%, even in high school before I, you know, did it for money or whatever, I often would have sex with men on the first night because I felt like, you know, uh, it's not necessarily because I wanted to, it was because I thought they wanted to, and I thought that would make them like me more. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, it's, it's actually crazy how common it is. It, was there any kind of traumatic event that kind of caused that belief system or was it just living in Southern California? It's kind of like, or like, you know, like it's all in the media and it's, it's just, you kind of created a, a, I don't know, a disorder, I guess, in your own head that, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. If, if they had like a self, low self-esteem disorder, I mean, I would be it. And it, right. and it shows, it shows through, you know, the food addiction, the bulimia, the body dysmorphia, which what mm -hmm. that is, is you see something completely different in the mirror than other people do. Um, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, those are just proof right there that, um, that I needed that extra validation. And so that's what a lot of my recovery has been about has been about finding my own validation in myself. You know what I mean? Right. Not caring if someone doesn't like me or if someone has something mean to say, because, you know, when I first started doing TikTok, you know, when I would get a mean comment, I would like argue with the person and like get my feelings hurt and shit. But now I just see it as one shitty comment amongst 99% positive comments. And so a lot of it is like just learning to change your self-talk and self-confidence. I wonder too, you know, why I, why I did that for this man. Even after laying, he would put his hands on me. He would choke me out. He would steal from me. Even after I'd given him money, he would steal more from me. And I just... I forgive you. I forgive you. I, and how I looked at it was like, I'm a down bottom bitch. Like you, that's another manipulation tactic is like, you want to be the most, you know, a bottom bitch is like a pimp's first girl. So say he has multiple girls, she's going to be like his, his bottom bitch, I guess. And I like mm -hmm. 
wanted that. I was like, that's cool. Like I, you know, you know what I mean? Like something, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like the same thing, like with selling drugs. It's like, yeah, I sold drugs at one point and I thought I was cool. I was like, yeah, I sell fucking drugs. And looking back now, I'm like, that's fucking lame and pathetic. Um, but yeah, just a lot of different techniques that I use to try and, you know, make myself feel good because I didn't feel good myself, you know, but no, I didn't have any, um, I didn't have any childhood trauma that I know of. I I know that you know my mom and dad are still together. They're both normies. Um, they both have had their fair share of health problems, but don't have. They're not alcoholics. They're not addicts. My sister is also not an alcoholic or an addict, um, and she is very successful. My sister is. So um, you know that was also a thing too. Like I Mm -hmm. didn't talk to her for some time and there was a lot of resentment towards each other. And even when I was in a coma for those five days because of shooting the old blood, she told me like later on that she almost wished that God would have just taken me then because then it would have eased not only my suffering, but my family's suffering. Um, That's another thing I didn't realize until I got clean was just how much it must have hurt my parents to do what I was doing. I was like, you know, why do you care so much? But now I know. I mean, I don't have kids yet, but I have a dog that I absolutely adore. And if he was out there at night doing that, so I'm sure it's like a hundred times stronger than that, you know, that worry. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I just feel terrible, like doing that to them. And I know that living amends is really the only way that I can, you know, show that I'm sincere now. Mm-hmm. I know I, I, when I was going through my darkest times too, you don't, I mean, it's a very selfish disorder, uh, substance <laughs> abuse. And, and so, yeah, you, you only see, you know, you only see and feel what you see and feel. Uh, and, and I say all the time that I, 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 my family, my wife and my kids probably had it a lot harder than I did being in the role that they were in because they were truly like helpless. They, they, I mean, they had absolutely no control. Uh, so yeah, it's, 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 uh, my kids at the time, they were 10 and 12, I think. Mm. So yeah, they were old enough to see what was going on. And I mean, I had to explain to them when I was going to treatment that like, I'm where I was going and why. And, you know, I've always been honest with them. Um, And, you know, I I was really struggling with mental health issues and the two, you know, I had to get sober before I could really start doing any kind of healing work for my mental health. So I kind of did my best to explain, you know, (laughs) the connection and that people just aren't, some people have different things. Some people have diabetes. Some people have anxiety and depression and addiction issues. And so, yeah, they've been they've been really great and really supportive. And um, so they're like like sixteen and seventeen now, or uh, actually, they just turned nineteen and seventeen um, wow. this month. So, yeah, I'm sure yeah. they're really proud of you. I, I think so. they don't say otherwise so that's good (laughs) um i mean and i still struggle i mean i still well you were talking about uh uh self-esteem and and stuff and like i i just finished doing a bunch of emdr therapy which is for trauma and stuff so i mean yeah it's it's a never-ending you know we're we're, it's it's gonna be for the rest of my life i'm you know you, you never get cured of of this stuff so uh yeah, it's just uh, I just gotta keep trying different things. And, yeah, being it's uh, hard when like like my parents and sister don't really have you know mental health issues either. So oftentimes my sister in the beginning, you know, why do you keep choosing drugs over the family? Was kind of how she would put it. Um, and I just I didn't understand why I couldn't change either. But um, the disease of addiction is cunning, baffling, and powerful. Even though I'm on methadone, I still work a 12-step program. I still go to meetings and work the steps. My sponsor knows I'm on methadone. Um, and, you know, I would say my first six months of uh, being clean, I had three different people that I asked to be my sponsor that told me no because I was still on methadone. Um, and so that 
triggered me in the beginning. Like, okay, well, if you're trying to tell me that I'm not clean because I'm on this medication, which I do understand where they're coming from because yes, methadone is an opiate, but methadone was formulated to not provide any euphoria. If you are a true opiate addict, then when you take methadone, it just makes you feel normal. It's never given like a euphoria. It will make you tired and sleepy sometimes, but it's not like the euphoric nod that you see people do that like feels so good. It's just normal tired. So mm. it's it's been really hard to just accept that this is my program and how I run it like shouldn't it's not really any of your business. It's my sponsor, me, and my higher powers business. And so it took me quite a few months before um, I felt confident in my recovery. You know, I, for a long time, was like, well, I'm not even clean yet. But that's, like, not the attitude to have, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. know. it's crazy. <laughs> Actually, just before I, I left my job at the treatment center, we were – Part of my job was to hand out Suboxone and, and um, I always forget the word. What what are you on again? Methadone. Methadone. Yeah. 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 It was interesting. And, and there was shit. There was even staff that were like, uh, you know, had judgment and stigma around this stuff. And it's like, well, there's no one size fits all treatment yeah. <laughs> you know some people well like you said to even like the marijuana program it's like it's harm reduction you know what's worse being on methadone and getting it you know handed to you by a, a professional or sleeping in the streets uh, injecting other people's blood to get high you know it's like so so give me a, a break <laughs> you know <laughs> it's like, totally. fuck. I mean, that's that it's you think it would be such like an obvious thing but um it's always seems to be people that have never had an opiate problem that are like alcoholics or maybe like recovering meth addicts that seem to have something to say about it. Um, and that's fine. They just don't understand opiate mm-hmm. and uh, opiates and alcohol, I believe are the things that people relapse on the most, the most frequently. And, you know, if there is something that can make it just a little bit easier, because when you're like white knuckling your sobriety and you're just so miserable because you're like abstinent or whatever that's not conducive to like rebuilding your life like what the methadone does is it able it it does help with the cravings because that opiate receptor is satisfied you know and then you don't have to go through those horrific withdrawals i don't think i could ever cold turkey successfully off of heroin or fentanyl i also you know did fentanyl too um, it's horrific. It lasts for days upon weeks. And um, it's not only physically awful, it's mentally awful. It's like having the worst flu of your life with the worst panic attack of your life combined. And you can't sleep. The not being able to sleep is just awful. And it drives people crazy. So, um, And often people will just go use again. And with the fentanyl mm-hmm. epidemic, I believe that Suboxone and Methadone need to be more widely accepted and stop not judged so much because that what they are is their tools and it's just another tool in my toolbox um and i don't think that i would have been able to make it this far without it so when used properly they really can be so effective um but of course we're addicts and some people do misuse their medication and but for sure yeah 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 well said brava <laughs> brava <laughs> that's my uh i watch the office that's what andy always says brava oh, or no it's oscar that yeah, doesn't matter um Do you like the so, big bang no oh you don't like that show i love it <laughs> <laughs> no i'm cute well <laughs> what's your relationship like with your family now that you're over two years clean oh it i'm is... sure there's still resentments and stuff but they're are are they optimistically cautious? They are optimistically cautious. No, definitely. no, cautiously optimistic. Ah, I screwed that up. <laughs> you know what I meant. <laughs> I do know what you meant. And um, I believe the first year or so, they were kind of just waiting for the relapse just because I've never been able to stay clean before. Um, but another motivation for me to stay clean is my best friend died when I was 30, 33 days clean from mm. 
a fentanyl overdose in the same apartment that I lived in with him. He was a friend from Hawaii and he was my best friend for 10 years. Like he always looked out for me and, you know, helped me um, with food and housing and money and never expected anything sexual from me. Most men nowadays don't do that. And, you know, don't just willingly help a woman without expecting some kind of sexual favors. So he never did that to me. He treated me almost like a little sister. And um, he was just such a, like, such a nice man. So anyways, I was about 30 days clean um, when I got the phone call that he was found dead in the apartment. And, you know, there was Narcan in the bathroom. There was Narcan in, on top of the fridge and the closet. I mean, it was everywhere. And so that has been extremely difficult for me. Um, was he using you know, on his own, though? He, no, he was using on his own with another girl that was in the apartment, too. And oh. she's... He didn't realize that he was had fallen out in the bathroom. But, you know, you don't let your friends that do opiates go do them alone in the bathroom with the door closed. It's like you just don't. You use out in public so we can see each other and see if someone needs help. Mm -hmm. And um, there was some rumors of foul play that went on, you know, that she didn't help him because she wanted his apartment because she was living in his apartment. And mm. Fred was the type of friend that like would give you his ATM card number to go take out money so that we could all get high and shit. So I'm sure that she had access to his, uh, account, you know, money. And I don't know because I haven't talked to her. She's blocked me on everything. Um, so anyways, the reason why I brought that up is because that happened when I was just about 30 days clean. And I kind of didn't really know if I really wanted to be clean then. I was struggling and it's hard to be clean. It's depressing. And um, it was kind of like at that moment, maybe not the night that he died, but probably within that week or so that I decided like, I'm done. I'm just done. I can't do this anymore. And I want Fred to be proud of me in heaven. Um, and so that has been a huge motivation for me to stay clean. You know, you could take mm -hmm. something like that and go use or relapse over it, which, you know, it did cross my mind. Um, but it's just been difficult because I never got to go to a funeral. Um, he didn't even get like properly buried for like two months because the girl, you know, didn't make the necessary phone calls. He was a vet, a veteran. And so he wanted to be buried in a specific place. And anyways, long story short, um, mm. it's just... I think, what was your question? Oh, yeah, about my parents. So, yeah, they are super mm. proud of me. And not only has my health and happiness improved, but so has theirs. My dad is about to be 72, and my mom is 66. So, you know, it's difficult to watch them get older. But I know that me staying clean is, like, such a less of a burden for them. Because I can only imagine how many nights they stayed up all night worrying about me and stuff. So that's another motivation, yeah. definitely. And me and my sister are rebuilding our relationship, too. We don't spend as much time together as I would like. Um, and I think there's always going to be a little bit of resentment. But I I think time heals all wounds. And I just, as long as we stay clean, like, good things will keep happening, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I So you, you say you're seeing a counselor. I'm curious, like, to be a sex worker for that long, there must be a lot of traumas that you're trying to work through. Yeah. Like I said, you only remember about 10% of them and 10% of them, I mean, they, they sounded horrible. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I was sexually assaulted multiple times, like men being aggressive and, and stuff. And I was, I was actually raped one time. Um, it was with uh, a client. Um, but he 100% like raped me. I mean, it was not, I was screaming for him to stop and he wouldn't. So um, that was like super traumatizing. You know, whether you're like a sex worker or not, it still is super traumatizing when that shit happens. Um, and he was a like six foot five black man. So he was extremely large and it hurt. He was like hurting me. So that's why he raped me is because, you know, I don't mean to get like too personal, but he was a very large black man. It was very big. And I kept telling him, please slow down. You're hurting me out. And so finally he just flipped me over onto my stomach. He's like, I paid for this pussy bitch. Or I'm going to fuck it how I want to. And I just, that was one of the things that happened that, you know, was when I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> like, I just can't, you know, and then I had a regular 
who I would see frequently that I was comfortable with that never did anything wrong to me. And it was during the middle of a date with him that I started bawling my eyes out. And I was like, get off me, get off me. I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. Because just like to have sex with someone that you are not physically attracted to and that you don't want to be having sex with, it's awful. I mean, it really is just awful. But the main reason why I continued to do sex work is because I had a really large habit. In Hawaii, the drugs are twice as expensive as they are here. A gram of heroin is $60 here. In Hawaii, it's 120 I had at mm. least a two to three gram day a habit. I knew people that would go out and break into cars. I knew people that would, um, you know, boost stuff from stores and sell it. I knew people that, you know, that's how they got well. I wasn't going to be doing that. I am not that kind of person. And I never, it never sat right with me. Like one time I went driving around with them while they broke into cars and I tried one to open a car door and it was open and we took the wallet and everything. I was probably only 22 or 23, but I remember going home that night. I don't ever want to do that again. That fucking sucks. And mm. so that's how I looked at it. It's my problem. It's my addiction. And so I'm going to harm myself to get the money. Um, but mm. I did a lot of damage to myself, you know, because I just wasn't looking out for my mental health at all. I put myself into so many dangerous situations where I was just beyond terrified. Um, and yeah. 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 It's gonna a be lot a... of people have asked me, you know, why, why did you keep doing it if you were trafficked in the beginning? And that's why, because I didn't want anybody else to have to pay for my addiction, you know? Always wondered about uh, sex workers and the sexual trauma. And I mean, I'm again, everybody's different, but you're able to enjoy sex. It's not like work or it doesn't trigger you or doesn't any of that stuff. Like there's that, been a few times where I've been triggered. Um, not because oh. of anything necessarily that he did. Um, right. but sometimes I get flashbacks in the middle, um, in the middle of it. And another thing that I've really learned and, and grown from is I used to look at sex as just being for the man. It's purely mm. for them to get off. And then when I, they're done, they can get off me. Like almost as if I'm just like a toy to be used. But what I've learned and what my boyfriend, you know, makes sure of is that it's for both of us and it's not just for him. So he's just been really patient and kind and, you know, cause I'm like a lot to deal with at home. I know I am because I'm mentally ill and I'm insecure as fuck. So I'm constantly, do you, do you still think I'm beautiful? Do you still think I do, you know, do you still love me? And it's like, I know that shit is so annoying and I'm really trying to like, not be like that, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a work in progress. We all work are. In progress. Yep. It's, it's progress, not perfection. This segment is called That's Some Bunny Special. That's a segment where we chat about who cooperated in your mental health journey and helped fill your emotional tank. Brought to you by Co-op. So, so through all of this, who would you say was your biggest supporter or your biggest, yeah, I don't know. Who, who's there that you want to give a shout out to? I 100% my mom and dad because I mm. know I hurt them along the way, my mom and dad and sister not to not give up on me. Um, I also met my boyfriend in early recovery and was not looking for a relationship. In fact, I was on the, you know, no relationships for a year. Um, but I met Your him. 13th now. step. Yeah. He, <laughs> had, he had 90 days clean when I, when I met and I had 30 days clean and he's a recovering mm. cocaine and alcoholic, a cocaine addict. And so he said he had just moved to the area from a different part of San Diego and he didn't know any good meetings. And there was a cocaine anonymous meeting that I went to on Friday. So I took him with me and uh, we tried, you know, to just be friends, but God 100% placed him in my life for me because he, I met him four days after Fred died. And how I look at it is God took Fred from me and gave me Bradley um, because he is the most patient and sweet and kind and gentle man. Like God knew exactly what I needed, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And I am so happy to say that over two years later, we're still together and we're talking about starting a family. Um, I think there's been a lot of times where I, I did want to use and I did want to relapse and I didn't because of him. You know, when you have that partner at home uh, that you don't want to disappoint, it, it's a good deterrent, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and, and you're, you're 100% healthy. You didn't like, you don't, weren't diagnosed with all the several types of things you could get from drug use. Well, I actually did catch hep C um, okay. from the same guy who pimped me out was letting me use his needles after him. And he didn't tell me that he had hep C. And when I was at the hospital for an abscess one time, they told me that I had it. And then that's when he was like, oh, yeah, I have it. And I was like, then why did you let me use your needles, you fucking idiot? Just mm. another perfect example. He didn't look out for me. He didn't care about my well-being. Um, and I had endocarditis, so I do have some scarring on my heart. Um, but for the most part, I'm pretty healthy. It's mm. pretty amazing because the doctor told my parents I wasn't even supposed to survive. And if I was, I was going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life because the infection that I had was in my spinal cord. Oof. Thank you so much for that, Christina. You are an inspiration, and and it's proof that anyone can recover. Uh, it, it it takes hard work. It can be very frustrating, and it can be devastating to watch if you're a loved one. But it is possible. So, if you know someone that's struggling right now in addiction or mental health issues or whatever, just just point point them in this direction of the podcast. Um, you know, every episode I'm talking to somebody that's gone through something and are working their way through it. So uh, yeah, it's always an inspiration. So thanks again, Christina. Stay tuned for more amazing episodes coming up. I'm going to be speaking with a lady named Katrina. Her mother took her own life just hours after purchasing a handgun. And now she's changing laws in the, in the States called Donna's Law. Uh, I'm going to be talking with Brooke. She's an ADHD expert and has ADHD herself. Also a lovely lady named Lisa. She lost her daughter a while back uh, in a car accident. She's a grief counselor slash mentor. And uh, we're going to talk about grieving and how you can work through that. So stay tuned for those and a lot of other amazing things coming up. But in, in the meantime, please remember to make your beds and take your meds. Bye. <laughs>